Hello everyone and welcome back to the Arate podcast. Firstly, my apologies, it's been a while since I've released a podcast. There's been a lot going on in my life over the last six months or so, which uh, I'll uh, let you know a bit more about you know, in later podcasts. But it's meant I've had a bit of a hiatus in terms of interviewing people for the Arate podcast. So for those people who are regularly emailing me, asking when the next episode is coming, uh, my apologies, and here it is. Great conversation with Trevor Jackson today. I met Trevor, I guess, about a year ago. I was invited to be a guest on the ABC radio in Brisbane on a uh, sort of a current affairs slash uh, general uh, light-hearted look at the world segment called Eat the Week. Trevor hosted, and uh, it would typically be three people, often myself as a business person, a comedian and a journalist, uh, and we would pick a few topics out of the week's news uh, and just talk a lot of rubbish about them, basically, and it was great fun. I had a fantastic time. I'm still doing it now, uh, although under a slightly different format. Uh, Trevor has left the ABC, but I must have done about six or seven of these with Trevor, and uh, we got to know each other quite well, and uh, he's a great guy and, uh, you know, fascinating um, story to his career, which we talk a lot about in this podcast. Trevor uh, has worked in media for over 30 years as a broadcaster, a journalist, a television reporter, a media trainer, a voiceover artist, an event host, a freelance writer, a music director, and a content director, to name just a few. And we have a great chat, not only about the media industry and his own career, but certainly we talk a lot about music, which I have a passion for as well, being a musician, and also what Trevor's up to nowadays. Uh, He's moved into a different role, um, supporting... Uh, the promotion of the Gold Coast as a destination for uh, students predominantly. And uh, we talk a bit about that too. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Trevor Jackson. Well, Trevor, welcome to the Arate Podcast. Uh, firstly, I've been on your radio show, I think, eight or nine times last year, so it's fantastic to have the opportunity to sit on the other side of the uh, the mic here in your beautiful home at Mount Tambourine on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Lovely to be invited to do it. Yeah, it's uh, always interesting being on the other side of the mic. How often would that happen for you? Uh, not that often. Uh, every now and then someone uh, seems to take an interest, so okay. yeah. Cool. And so what are the sort of things you've been interviewed uh, for in the past? Has it been mainly around your media career or the things you do in music or what? Yeah, most people. It's funny, um, I was doing a workshop with some uh, university students on Friday and I was asking them to, uh, it was a storytelling workshop, and I was asking them to tell their stories. And at the end of it, I said, any questions? And one wag put their hand up and said, what's your story? Right. So I went, oh, okay, in 30 seconds, here's my story. And of course, it's almost impossible to encapsulate your story in 30 seconds, so... I've had a very varied career and probably, and I think I guess for a lot of people, you don't necessarily see the trajectory of where you're, where you end up, which is great sure. because there's all sorts of twists and turns. There's all sorts of diversions along the way. Absolutely. So before we uh, go into the twists and turns of your career, uh, hopefully over more than 30 seconds, <laughs> uh, perhaps about 50 minutes, just tell us a little bit about what you're up to now. 
Uh, so I've just um, taken on a new role for an organisation called Study Gold Coast, uh, and they are an advocacy group for um, education on the Gold Coast, uh, both secondary and tertiary, and really interesting organisation in that they, the job is primarily twofold. It's to be an advocacy group for the students who come here, to be that student voice and represent them, but also to promote the Gold Coast as a study um, destination. And effectively, the, the business is known as education tourism now, and it's big business in Australia now. Mm. It's like the third biggest industry in the country now. Mm. And I think you were saying something like a, a billion dollars of revenue per year for the just, Gold Coast. Just for the Gold Coast, yeah. It's about right. $20 billion nationally and about a billion dollars a year for the Gold Coast. And of that billion dollars, you know, is there um, particular entities that suck up the majority of that or is that spread across a whole heap of different things? Yeah, it's spread across a deep, uh, heap of different things and, you know, we we work closely with local government, state government, with uh, the universities and, and our members um, like TAFE and, and a whole bunch of um, Ellicos, um institutions and VET mm-hmm. um, institutions. Um, so it's a whole range of things, high schools, etc., uh, and then we're working closely with uh, bodies like Gold Coast Tourism and uh, there's uh, a lot of international trade work that's done between here and countries like India and China, for instance, where a lot of students come from mm-hmm. that choose to study here. So, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, business to be in. And I suppose particularly at the moment with the uh, Commonwealth Games coming up, uh, what's been the interaction between the two entities in that regard? Yeah, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the Commonwealth Games, and we see it as an opportunity to leverage off that to promote the Gold Coast as a desirable destination to come and visit and, and study. Uh, India, is, of course, as a Commonwealth nation, is a prime focus of that. But there's a lot of uh, other countries that are represented here in the Gold Coast that you might not realise, Canada, um, Malaysia, um, Singapore, UK, for instance... Uh, but outside the Commonwealth countries, you've got places like uh, Brazil. A lot of Brazilian students come here. China, of course. South yep. Korea. Japan. So uh, there will be opportunities to leverage off that, even though they're not Commonwealth countries, in terms of the kind of things that we'll be doing to promote the Gold Coast as a study destination. Okay. And what's uh, your specific role in all of that? So uh, my role is content editor. So my my career has been in the media and whilst this is not a broadcast media role it's still an editorial role so it's about generating content stories getting our stories out there and sharing those stories with the world and these days as the traditional media landscape is shrinking and the independent or digital media landscape is expanding rapidly Mm. you're finding that there's a lot more um, opportunities in um, areas like this where you know these days, everyone's a journalist. It's the sure. era of citizen journalism. Anyone who's got a mobile phone and has a social media account, you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, definition of journalism is reporting on what you see. So if you're sharing stuff on you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. So this is the interesting thing about the landscape we're in now. So my role is still a media role and I'm still generating stories, but it's through social media platforms and through our various partners and uh, liaising with the universities and uh, with those government bodies and tourism and all that sort of stuff and getting those stories out there. And I suppose with so many different students from so many different nationalities who, as you say, are all here and they've got a Facebook feed and they've got an Instagram feed and you know they're writing their own blogs and making their own little video podcasts, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, you know, having some way of collating and pulling the uh, the really interesting stories out of all of that together and. Uh, 
and then using that as a way to promote the Gold Coast must be quite fascinating. It is, yeah. It's inspiring too. Um, for instance, there's a program we run called the Mayor's Ambassador Program, which, which students apply for that come and study here. And uh, we just inducted them a few days ago, 35 in, uh, ambassadors, some locally, uh, some are just born and bred Gold Coasters, but many are from overseas countries. And I, when you speak to them and you find what motivates them and how optimistic they are about the future and the possibility and the potential, you see the leadership potential in them, the qualities mm. in them. Uh, and I think it's really exciting to be involved with people who want to make a difference in the world. And for you to be involved in facilitating those opportunities is is a really good, uh, a feel-good kind of thing. Yeah, I, uh, my own experience, I've often judged the Australian Institute of Management's Young Manager of the Year Awards, I've done it a lot of times, and you see these young people who are just so, as you say, enthusiastic and optimistic and really doing great things, and then you look at what's widely presented in the media that... You know, the younger generation are all about me and they're lazy and self-interested and, and ho- hopeless. And, it, you know, there's such a disparity between what I'm experiencing and what, what you read. It, it, I don't understand why there's uh, such a, a broad negative connotation placed across, you know, the um, Gen Ys and, and whatever, the millennials coming through. Yeah, I think it's really unfair. Yeah, there's some amazing people out there. Uh, and... Uh, they believe in the future, and that's great for people maybe of a certain age that maybe have uh, seen their, their prime somewhat behind them, might not feel the same way. But but I just, you've got to be optimistic. You've got to see the potential in the future, and, and this is their world that they're going to be inheriting it. They're the ones who are going to be making the decisions of the future. And, uh, you know, when, when people like you and I, Richard, are, are old and grey and and uh, living in retirement, they're going to be making the decisions that impact on our lives. So it's yeah, it's really important. Well, I think there's old and grey and living in retirement used to be not too far for me, but now probably <laughs> we're talking 70 or 80, so uh, I think we've got a ways to go. I think so, yeah. Well, the government keeps raising the bar, don't they? They want us to work longer. And in a way, I think that's, that's the interesting thing about the modern world too, in the digital age, in what you do with your podcast and what I've done in the media is that I can see that I will still be working well into that age in a whole variety of, uh, of, of means because there are more opportunities yeah. now. As I say to people, hopefully out of choice rather than necessity. <laughs> but uh, let's go back to where it all began. So tell us about uh, you know where you were born and uh, mum and dad, brothers and sisters mm-hmm. uh, and growing up. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids. I was born in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, yeah, a pretty typical suburban sort of childhood, I suppose. Nothing too remarkable, but uh, there was a big change in my life. My parents divorced, and we, my mum and by then my brother and sister, who were much older than me, had sort of moved on to, with their lives as young adults, starting their careers and, and study and all that sort of stuff, and families and what have you. Um, but I was just starting high school, and we moved to the central coast of New South Wales, okay. uh, which is Gosford, around that part of the world which, uh, this is the 1970s, was a wonderful place to live. It was a real beach lifestyle. Um, but we lived on a rural property about 15 minutes from the beach. It's actually right. not that different to the life I lead right now, funnily enough. I think there's something that was instilled in me at that age that I loved about that kind of life. And so what sort of work did your parents do? Uh, so my mum did a whole range of things, um, a lot of uh, hospitality work, um, my dad was a truck driver and okay. then 
they both work shift work, which is one of the reasons, main reasons why their, their marriage sort of didn't work out. They were not seeing, spending a lot of time together. Uh, so when my mum and dad split and mum remarried, she remarried a, a farmer. So right. my stepdad was a farmer and he had a 21 acres market garden. He had citrus and tomatoes and we grew corn and beans and mandarins, oranges, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was a great life. I had trail bikes and uh, mates would come around and we'd ride around the farm, 21 acres, just hooning around. It was in a rainforest kind of place. Not Again, not dissimilar from the kind of environment I live in now. And uh, when we weren't riding our trail bikes, we'd be down the beach or I'd be working on the farm. Uh, so that was kind of my life. Interestingly, just when my mum moved there, you said, um, what was she doing? She actually took a job working at the local drive-in, running the, um, the snack bar there. Okay. And when I was 13, which was 1977, my Star Wars opened. Right. And I sat in my mum's car every night for two weeks while it ran at the drive-in <laughs> with as much junk food as I wanted as a right. kid, watching Star Wars night after night after night. And this is in the days before VCRs. You right. couldn't rent a movie like that, so yeah. you had to go to the cinema and see it. And these were the days when that film in particular, there were queues that would go around the block just oh, waiting. Oh, yeah, Truly a blockbuster, the whole meaning of that, that it's, term. It's one of those moments where, what were you doing when Star Wars came out? Like, <laughs> what were you doing in 9-11? But I remember my dad had been in the US and he'd seen Star Wars and he came back and he said, oh, we've got to go and see this movie. And uh, so I was nine and my brother was seven. And uh, we literally stood in a queue for about three hours in Sydney uh, to get in and see a movie that changed my life oh yeah yeah, yeah it does it, it's like that yeah so yeah it was an interesting life um, and, and an interesting film uh, and a very influ influential one for a lot of us I think uh, so yeah that's sort of my life growing up I guess in terms of what shaped me for my media career um, I I remember in Sydney sort of hearing uh, being aware of certain radio announcers for instance that I I knew of like Gary O'Callaghan and, and maybe Ian McRae on 2SM and they were big stars and rated very well. And I remember listening to the radio, not having a particular interest. I think in my high school years, the one thing that really switched me on to the radio, when I really took notice, my stepfather was a staunch ABC man mm -hmm. and, uh, and a Sydney Morning Herald reader and whatever. He influenced me a lot. And uh, he used to listen to Clive Robertson on what was okay. then 2BL in Sydney. And he was incredible. He blew my mind. I, suddenly, he stood out from the crowd. He was witty, irreverent, knowledgeable, uh, a real sardonic kind of sense of humour, but uh, just an outrageous sense of irreverence that he could get away with it. Mm. And I, I'd never heard anyone like him. I couldn't believe it. And he compelled you to listen to what he was doing. Mm. Totally fascinated me. And I went, wow, that's interesting. And really, how old really. were you when you really started to tune into that and potentially think oh, it was I was probably about 14, 15. Okay. And I hadn't thought about broadcasting as a career, although it became my career, but it certainly opened my mind to the potential of it. So he was the first one that really made an impact on me, left a, a real lasting impression. And then this, the next thing that happened that really stuck in my mind, I was in year 11, maybe end of year 11, year 12, and my best mate said to me, oh... You've got to listen to um, this FM radio station I've been listening to. I said, "What's that?" He said, "Two Triple M." Right. Which we could, which was Sydney station, which we could pick up. And I said, "What's FM?" I didn't know what FM mm. was. It had just launched about within the last year. And he said, "Oh, it's this new radio frequency." And so I started listening to this station called Two Triple M, which had just 
a guy called Doug Mulray had just started there as the breakfast announcer and strangely enough had worked at the local um, AM commercial radio station on the Central Coast in my a few years earlier. So I was aware of who he was. I sort of vaguely remember him being on that station. But he was this totally irreverent guy again. But this was a kind of different broadcasting. It wasn't the, hey, it's five to nine and coming up next, uh, you know, uh, two in a row, you know, whatever it was that sort of cliched radio announcer mm. thing. These were guys that spoke like real human beings, had a self-deprecating sense of humour, which I really loved. But then musically, they were playing stuff that, that uh, AM commercial radio had never touched. Mm-hmm. So suddenly my mind was being opened up to Neil Young and Van Morrison and uh, Bob Dylan and stuff that I hadn't really heard and went, wow, that's really interesting. So you had a whole diverse range of music that was going on, album tracks, and and it's the, the, the quality of the sound being stereo after mm-hmm. listening to Tinny AM. Sure. A little speaker was suddenly like, bam, revelation. And then I started, started to think, you know what? This is really appealing to me because mm. I was really into music. Um, I enjoyed writing. I liked the idea of maybe kind of journalism and writing, but I, always, I was very passionate about music. Mm-hmm. And I thought, broadcasting. That Were you could a musician be- too? Uh, kind of. I look, you know, I've, I do own a, a beautiful vintage Maton guitar, okay. 1972 Maton guitar, uh, which I found out the history of it, toured with JJK, oh, JJ right. Kale on his tour in 1972 here. Um, so it does have a bit of history, that guitar. But I'm not what you'd call a great guitarist. I've murdered a few songs in my right. time. I enjoy noodling away on it, mucking around on it. I wish I'd spent more time on it. So you were attracted to music as... Uh, a journalistic uh, orientation. Yeah, it kind of it's kind of a merge of those things. I think I I I loved writing, and I'm very interested in what makes people tick. Naturally mm-hmm. curious about what makes people tick. I've got a bookcases full of biographies. I love reading biographies. Really curious about people's journeys that they've taken, how they got there, the mistakes they made, what they learned from it. Just it always interested me. Always. So I think things like that uh, sort of fed into that. So I sort of thought, well, I like that, but I also love music. So maybe I could do something that combines the two. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of broadcasting. So I went, I think that's what I want to do. And that was a, a conscious sort of thought prior to finishing high school. Uh, yeah, I hadn't quite realised that it. it sort of took me a while to get there. I did take a year out from high school um worked in sydney for a year which was a disaster i just hated it uh and then i thought no i do want to do this so Mm -hmm. then i went to uni and i did um communications so Mm -hmm. i did journalism and media and then i started doing some radio stuff when i was doing got involved in radio on campus um a few things did some radio plays did you know that sort of stuff but also started to develop my writing as well uh and then i um, got accepted into the Australian Film and Television School. It's mm-hmm. now called the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Okay. Um, but in those days, it was just AFTS, which is at North Ride in Sydney, which is the full-time broadcast um, course there. So you'd completed your degree? Uh, hadn't quite, actually. Right. I had a year to go and got accepted. It was weird. I, I just wanted to get going. And when I got right. accepted into afters, I went, no, I'm doing this. And what sort of work did you do while you were at uni? Obviously, you couldn't work on your stepfather's farm anymore because... Uh, uh, I'd go back on holidays and do it, okay. you know, to make some money. But yeah, um, no, typical uni life, you know, too much drinking and, and carousing and doing that stuff as you do. But just um, 
developing a wider worldview. I think that's the the great thing about okay. university that you meet all these people from suddenly from very different backgrounds mm-hmm. from what you've previously experienced, and suddenly it opens your mind to a whole range of things and um, you know authors, poets, artists, mm-hmm. you know musicians, what film, all okay. that sort of stuff. And so you went full time into the film television. I did course. Yep, did that. And right. then, but then I was into radio from there. So, right. Yeah. So, how does a career in radio evolve? <laughs> For me, uh, yeah, well, that's an interesting one. So, uh, afters was good because you got a grounding in all aspects of broadcasting. So, whether it's uh, writing news bulletins, editing, uh, making documentaries, um, hosting a radio show, um, field reporting. All sorts of stuff, you know, the, the the mechanics of editing and all that sort of thing. Really, writing copy, if you're writing, which is mm-hmm. for commercials, copywriting, yeah. that sort of stuff. So it covered everything that mm-hmm. you could possibly do. And one of the great things about that course, and they still do it in that course, was very hands-on that at various stages during the course, you'd be shipped off to a radio station for a week. Right. So I spent a week at a station in Inverell in northwestern New South Wales, which was interesting. And often in those small country stations, they just throw you on the air because they're always short of staff. Yeah. So you could just get chucked in the deep end. So that mm-hmm. was interesting. I spent a week in Canberra at a station called Two Double C, which was the top rating station in Canberra at that time. So a much bigger market, which was really interesting. Obviously, Canberra is a very big political city, so it was interesting to be in that environment and see how that operated. Uh, and then my last station was in Sydney at mm-hmm. 2CH. I spent a week there. So I, I got a sort of whole gamut of different uh, radio environments, if mm-hmm. you like, which was good. And strangely, I got offered a job at 2NZ in Inverell, that first station where I had spent a week. The manager was really impressed with me. Offered it to me two weeks before I even graduated. They said, so you come in as a sort of a jack of all trades, or you're you're put into a particular you know department or section. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah I was offered a, a, a time slot uh, to host a show. And so then, how old would you have been then? About twenty. Yeah, it's just turned twenty one. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so I did the afternoon program and some weekend work. Okay. Um, commercial radio is often a six day right a week prospect. Was that common at the time for somebody of that age to have that level of responsibility, or were you a, um, a, a bit of a shining star? Oh, I don't think I was a shining star. That's hard to say. I don't know. I, uh, it seems to me now, and I don't listen to commercial radio at all because yeah. um, that all of the DJs or you know hosts yeah. or whatever you want to call them, they're all my age. Well, they seem to be. You know, <laughs> it doesn't really seem to be young, per, um, uh, except for say Triple J or what have you. Yeah. It, it, the, uh, the, the nature of the, of, the, of the industry has changed, but certainly in that era, and this is the mid-80s, um, it was a breeding ground for future talent. And right. a lot of those people who became very famous um, came through the, the ranks in country radio. Okay. Doug Mulray's one of those. He started at 2AD Armadale, for instance, right. and became a huge radio star. These days, they, they tend to look for people that have been mm-hmm. ex-retired sports stars or... Um, reality TV stars. Yeah. What it's a very different beast now. Yeah. But in those days, it was very much about the craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't digitised like it is now. So you had to learn how to um, splice tape together with interviews. Like, And sometimes you'd have a spool of tape and there'd be so many splices in it, you'd, you'd be struggling to put a little chalk mark and get the right. tape together to do it. Um, but you learnt, you learnt the trade. You learnt the craft. You'd, you'd go in and do a voiceover session where you'd have a pile of cartridges, which you'd record the ads on, and a script in between each one. 
be like 30 carts high. The copywriter would give it to you. You'd walk into a studio, put it in there, queue up a, a backing track, which was the music behind the commercial, which was just a vinyl record, mm -hmm. and you'd had slip start turntables, so you'd queue it up and the needle would be sitting there. You'd start the track. You'd press record on a reel-to-reel -reel recorder. You'd have some sound effects you'd already pre-recorded on a cartridge and a cart player. You'd let the, the record go. You'd start reading the ad live. You'd drop the sound effect in at the right point as you did. And then you'd stop the tape and queue it up and make sure it ran 30 seconds mm -hmm. or 29 seconds, sure. whatever it was. And that's how you learned how to read commercials. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good... It actually was great training for me later when I became a freelance voice artist. Fantastic, because you would just do that day in, day out. Because the small country stations got very few of the big national agency commercials, right. like the NRMAs or the Coca-Colas mm. or the Qantases or whatever. So you get occasionally get a few of those, right. but the rest of the time they're all just local clients, local right. businesses. So you were just churning out these. It's a sausage factory. It doesn't sound very glamorous, but no. I imagine being a 20, 21-year-old, uh, you know, there would have been part of it which was getting invited to all the exciting events and being a bit mm. of a, a celebrity around town. Yeah, um, a little bit like that. You enjoyed that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's not the reason you do it. It's a funny thing. I loved radio or was never really interested in television, I loved the anonymity of radio. Right. The fact that no one really knew who you were. Yeah. That you could go in there and be in the studio. The theatre of the mind thing, you didn't know who the, who the person was that owned the voice. Now, these days, radio stations all have their own websites and you can see what the personalities look like. Yeah. But in those days, we didn't. Right. And I liked that. And I liked that you could walk down the street. But people would identify you by your voice. Of course, mm. you'd walk in, you'd go... You've got a really good radio voice. You sound like someone. Do I know you? Or are you that guy that right. does the afternoon show or whatever? So, yeah, it was like that. Um, it was a good training ground, in, and not just in learning commercials, everything. You know, you'd have to go out and file news stories mm -hmm. because the, the journalist was sick or you, mm -hmm. were the, you were the spare journalist for the day and you were the one that was available, so you'd go out and cover mm -hmm. a story. Um, I, I moved into the morning show. I did afternoons at first and then the morning show, which was the talkback show. Right. That's where I really felt like I was being thrown at the deep end. So that was interesting because I was terrified of, mm. of um, defaming someone or being sued. Or um, You worked in delay, as all talkback programs mm -hmm. do, but worried that I wouldn't cut somebody off if they said something defamatory quickly right. enough or, you know... That's the, 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 the eternal fear that you live with doing a program like that when you don't have that experience, when you're mm -hmm. very green. Mm -hmm. Of course, once you've done that for a while, you know where the boundaries are. Mm -hmm. But in those days, it's all fly by the seat of your pants kind right. of stuff. It's a big learning experience, but it was very exciting. It was and great. So how long were you there for? Uh, about a year. Oh, okay. And then where from there? Uh, I was offered a job at a bigger station, uh, 2ST in Nowra, mm -hmm. doing the evenings program and then the drive program. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, the way stations, it's probably still the same, I can't say now, it's been a while, but the way stations worked then, they were graded by the, the market, size of the market. So if you were, went to a little station out the middle of nowhere, broadcasting a small audience, you'd be on a pretty meagre sort of salary. Oh, see, yeah. And then if you went to a slightly bigger station, the, the, um, the industry standard, the pay scale would go up. Right. So I moved to a bigger market. Mm -hmm. um, I went from a market that broadcast to about, I think, 15,000 people to one that broadcast to 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. So my pay rate went up and there was more resources in the station and there were um, more experienced presenters at the station because they were better paid and so you learnt more from them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you, again, you're developing the craft mm -hmm. of, of radio and, and, and what to do. 
you start to become a bit more specialised in, in what you're doing then. So I basically became a, you know, a, a presenter. Uh, and then from there I ended up uh, going to Sydney. And uh, I was very keen to try and get to Sydney. That was the target. And I really wanted to go and work at 2 Triple M, mm-hmm. the station that had inspired me years before. And uh, it took me a few years in Sydney to get there. And I ended up um, leaving radio for a while I, uh, because I was disenchanted. I couldn't get what I wanted. So I ended up filling shelves uh, in, for Woolworths, like right. just packing shelves at night and going okay. to... Just and just desperately hounding the program director of Two Triple M, saying hire me, hire me, hire me, and eventually he did. Right. Uh, I think if there's a, if you want to get into radio, well, and you really want a job, just ha- target the station you want to work at, and then and then make that your goal, and hound the program director mm. or content director as they're called these days, and just hound that person, and just um, keep refining your craft. Mm. Like I'd go there and he'd say, oh yeah, that's pretty good, but. You know, maybe you need to work on this aspect of what mm-hmm. you're doing. Maybe that's not quite right. And so you go away, you'd work on a new demo tape, or you, I'd do some more casual work wherever I could, um, get more experience, but always with the goal of trying to get to that station. And wh- why was it Triple M in particular that you were so enamoured by? Uh, because I really loved what they were about. I loved the sound of the station. I loved the naturalness of the broadcasters. Uh, I loved the attitude of the station. Uh, you know, I was a young guy who was into rock and roll and, and I loved the music they mm-hmm. played and I saw the opportunities there. And I think this is the thing too that people wouldn't necessarily equate with 2 M or the Triple M network as it is now. In those days, the, the network had only just started, but 2 M, the station created by Rod Muir, was a very different beast to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a radio station, for instance, our news director was a huge uh, environmental campaigner. Now, this is before it was fashionable to be an environmental campaigner. He had an environmental award. Uh, Doug Mulroy used to call him David Five Bins White, but he had five bins <laughs> for recycling. You right. know? Like in the days when this didn't happen, you had your compost bin and your paper sure. bin and your plastics and your, your general garbage household waste, all that sort of stuff. Um, we used to do documentaries. We used to run radio documentaries. We did documentaries on street kids, on drug abuse, on... Um, we had a political reporter based in Canberra. Um, we had, when um, Bob Hawke uh, beat uh, Malcolm Fraser uh, to be, win the Prime Ministership, we had the Prime Minister and the opposition leader in for a panel discussion in the station mm. and talking about issues um, relevant to our target market, mm-hmm. which was 18 to 24 male, which, which is what I was, yeah. and the secondary market, which is sort of 25 to 39 demographic. So... A, I was in the target demographic of the station, mm-hmm. and B, I totally identified with it mm-hmm. and saw that they were far more than just a rock and roll station, that they they um, cared about issues, that they were engaged in the community, and that they were creating great radio. Sure. And so, so how long were you there for? Seven years. Okay. So, yeah, once I got to where I wanted to be, I didn't want to leave. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I was very happy there. And so what uh, ended up... Um being the catalyst for you leaving after seven years? Uh, the game started to change, the change of ownership. Um, it, the station was number one for five years in Sydney too while I was there. Mm-hmm. So to be a part of that and to have seen that and to have enormous success and to have so many people listening to that station. And this is a station, mind you, that was twenty five on the 25th floor of uh, a tower at Bondi Junction with views down the Sydney Harbour, down to the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. 
um, you'd sit in that studio. It was the most inspiring place to work, working with most amazing people, incredible broadcasters and journalists. And um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. So it would have to take a lot to make me want to leave that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, times change, circumstances change, the owners changed at the station and then the culture changed in the station and mm -hmm. suddenly it wasn't as attractive as it was. And even though when I left I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life and still had a year to go on my contract, I really wasn't happy there. Mm -hmm. And I made a decision to walk away from it. And it was a really hard decision to make. And I struggled with it after I left because the problem was I'd got to where I'd wanted to go. Yeah. And then it's like, what now? Right. Where do I go now? And I didn't know. Mm. I didn't have an answer. So my wife and I, we didn't have kids at that stage, so we just packed up and we did a road trip around America. Right. Bought a 69 Mustang. Okay. And drove around America for about six months. And just, uh, I visited some radio stations while I was there. I had some contacts there. I was looking to do something there. I ended up doing a little bit of work at a station in Denver, in mm -hmm. Colorado. I didn't have a green card, so I was kind of an illegal right. alien, as it were. But enjoyed the experience. Uh, so spent a bit of time there. Um, just I was basically looking for opportunities and trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had some money in the bank. I'd made good money out of those years at Triple M. So I could afford the luxury to do it. So we went and did it. And how did you find at the time, uh, coming from an Australian context into an American context, obviously massively larger audiences and, yeah. you know... Um, was uh, your craft very equivalent or were there some glaring um No, the craft, the craft wasn't the issue. The problem was there that uh, Triple M being such a successful station and through the 80s and 90s when there was a lot of money around, it was mm -hmm. big money um, in those days. Uh, to, America was a very different beast. You have um, markets where there were, instead of having, I don't know, I guess when I left Triple M in the mid-90s, there was probably eight commercial stations in Sydney, you go to Los Angeles and there'd be 50 commercial sure. stations. Yeah, there's bigger populations, but there's a lot more stations. And so they're competing for niche audiences. Mm -hmm. So you're not making the same kind of money, so it's much harder. And so they don't pay as well, but everyone's clambering to try and have their shot at the title, mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. So far more competitive, um, very different kind of um, uh, marketplace. But I enjoyed the experience, but I didn't see, having tasted it, that it was going to be long-term, even mm. if I could have got a green card. Mm. The pay just wasn't viable, but I did it for the experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, enjoyed it. It was good. It was a novelty to them to have an Aussie on their team, right. you know, to have an Australian voice uh, on the air. And that was a point of difference for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I ended up recording a whole bunch of station IDs for them uh, and we have really good friends who live in Denver who told us the station ran for years and years and years okay, after that. Right. So, like, you know, their, their point of difference was, you know, 96.5, the peak, the only station with a real arsy. Like, you know, <laughs> That's you know. crocodile Dundee impressions. Uh, yeah, can't, well, can't, not really. But it was interesting because where the station was in Denver, the, the, there's a venue there called Red Rocks, which oh, yeah. uh, if you've seen the U2 concert, uh, Live Under a Blood Red Sky, that mm. was done there. But that venue's been going for years. The Beatles played there in the mid-60s. And, right. and then I found out that Australian bands like Midnight Oil and Hunters and Collectors had played there. And one of the things that I liked about this station was that they were very familiar with Australian bands and, mm -hmm. and those bands had actually gone into the station and done um, showcase performances in the station right. and, and, and were on the playlist. 
So again, that was appealing to me because I could identify mm-hmm. with what they were mm-hmm. doing. So, okay. so mm-hmm. back to Australia. Right. Yeah, came back to Australia and then sort of had to think about what I wanted to do. So I went back to radio for a little while. I uh, worked for a station called 2SM and was and asked to do the breakfast program there. I had previously done the breakfast show at 2 Triple M in Sydney, which is kind of like the the peak of, I guess, yeah. broadcasting in that sense. Um, so had we had the number two breakfast show when I was at 2 Triple M, so like rated quite well. Um, number two to Wendy Harmer when she was number one at that time. So it was kind of, you know, we're only, I think, within a point of where she was. We got pretty close to her. But when that all sort of um, started to go south it was time for me to mm-hmm. walk away from that so yeah when I came back though 2SM said well would you like to come and do the breakfast show here so I did that for a year but I to be honest I I wasn't really content in doing that and knew that that wasn't what I really wanted to do and by that stage I'd become even in the latter years of Triple M I'd become very big ABC consumer okay listening a lot to um, 702 or 2BL in Sydney uh, Triple J of course and could see that the ABC was filling the void that Triple M could mm-hmm. no longer fill because it wasn't that radio station that I joined. Mm-hmm. It had changed. So I thought, yeah, maybe I want to go and work for the ABC. But that was a little ways off. I ended up freelancing as a um, freelance media consultant for five years. I did corporate videos. I did voiceover work. I worked on um, live shows like the ARIA Awards. I was the voiceover for that for a few years. The People's Choice Awards. I did a lot of uh, TV commercials for um, organisations like Telstra and Sharp and Toyota, and so so it just became a freelance mm-hmm. media operator, if you like, uh, with occasional radio work, but not not a lot. Uh, and then uh, we decided we wanted to start a family, and I wanted to go back to full time radio work, so I joined the ABC. Still in Sydney, or no? It's funny. I had a lot of friends who were working casually at the ABC and very well entrenched in the ABC and I thought people like Ian Rogerson is very well known uh, for instance uh, from Triple J and 702 and I thought well if Ian can't even get a full-time job there right. and he's he's in that culture mm-hmm. I thought I'd, I'd probably be a bit of a struggle for me to get a job in Sydney so I looked elsewhere and uh, ended up applying for a job for the ABC in Hobart okay so we went to live in Hobart for nearly four years right and I did the afternoon show there, which was great. Really enjoyed it. Loved uh, the experience. Very different culture to mm-hmm. having worked in commercial radio. Uh, but really started to get my teeth into some meaty content mm-hmm. and talk back and uh, enjoyed the creative freedom, which commercial radio didn't offer anymore. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed it. And then my former boss in Hobart, came to the Gold Coast and wanted me to apply for a job that was going on the Gold Coast Mm -hmm. uh, to host the morning show for the ABC on the Gold Coast. And so I took that and also hosted a local version of the Conversation Program, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people might listen to via Richard Feidler's national show now. But in those days, the ABC had a lot of local versions of conversations um, around the country, various people hosting that format. And I was doing that for the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast, as it turns out. It was networked to two markets and really enjoyed that um, long-form interview style. Mm-hmm. Um, interviewed everyone from... I did premiers, prime ministers and presidents to 
uh, environmentalists to authors, musicians, whatever. So just asking about their life story. Really loved it. So Yeah, as, as do I. It's yeah, a, it's a great thing, as you know. It's, you know. Uh, it is fascinating. And uh, um, one of the things I'm interested in, I mean, when you're in a career where from the outside world, you know, we look at um, uh, that type of work and say, well, really, you know, whilst every day is a different day, there's a lot of Groundhog Day to it. You know, how do you keep yourself um, challenged and growing and upskilling? You know, what are, what are the ways that you remain fresh? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you're with the ABC for, what, 16, 17 years. So. Yeah, 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 about that. Yeah, and no, that's a good question. Um, the One of the great things about, and one of the reasons why I've become so disenchanted with commercial radio was the kind of dumbing down mentality mm-hmm. from what it was and what it, it had become. It just didn't appeal to me anymore, this kind of lowest common denominator kind of mentality. And I needed more intellectual stimulation in what I was doing, and I wanted to be more engaged as a broadcaster. So that's why the ABC naturally appealed. Um, But in terms of staying on top of it, I think, number one, every day is different because different news stories break every day. So you're always looking for new ways to approach a story. Uh, Even as a commercial radio presenter, you... The trick was to find new ways to say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, you just get into a rut. Mm -hmm. You're not... If you're not looking for new ideas, new ways to be creative and new ways to, to uh, engage with an audience, then you might as well hang up your headphones. Uh, when I joined the ABC, of course, that there's a whole other raft of um, elements that enter into it. Uh, news stories of the day, um, local issues, um, talkback segments. Uh, you're always looking for new ideas. And the scope of what you can cover is much, much broader. Mm. So... There's never any shortage of inspiration in terms of the um, the kinds of stories you want to do, and technically, the industry's been evolving that much, particularly through the digital era, that there were always new challenges about new software to get your head around the advent of social media and how you would incorporate that in, into your mm-hmm. program as a broadcaster, how you could make that work for you, um, uh, becoming more au fait with visual technology because suddenly you're now required to be able to video a story right. or be a, a, a cameraman effectively and edit that mm-hmm. and, and, and incorporate that content into written form in an online mm-hmm. story for your website. You know, So there are a whole raft of skills that you were still learning uh, on top of your, your own broadcast skills mm-hmm. and your journalism skills that you already had. Mm, because a big part of what you do is relying upon you know your personality and your ability to engage and... Uh, build rapport and, and trust with the, you know, the people that you're talking to, mm. to suddenly add on to that, you know, oh, you also need to be a social media expert and you need to be an editing expert and you need to yeah. far out. I mean, that's, um, uh, I'm seeing in my own career and myself, uh, it becomes very overwhelming um, mm. to the point where you say, well, I, I need to probably just become a niche expert in a particular area. Mm. You know, such a long time with the ABC, where did you see... You know your, um, you know your uniqueness really shine out. Uh, I, I would say, in terms of interviewing and particularly doing the conversation program for three years, um, that I, be, and it comes back to my interest. And I think you know in your heart and your gut what your re, where your real strengths lie. And for me, I've always loved biographies, as I said. Mm. So I love what makes people tick, and I never tire of digging into people's lives and asking them about their lives. I'm naturally curious about it. 
I love engaging with people in that way, uh, trying to make them feel as comfortable as possible so that they can open up about mm. that. So for me, that's always been my forte. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about politics, a political issue, or whether you're talking about uh, someone's personal hardship or an emergency situation because a cyclone's bearing down on them. It's the same technique. It's the same thing. You're trying to um, create stories. You're trying to tell stories and get people to share their stories. Mm. And I really enjoy it. I love it. Yeah, I think one of the differences where I'm interviewing people for this podcast, it's often the only time they've ever done this. So they're pretty enthusiastic about it. But it's so, uh, you know, it's a, a unique experience for them. Whereas for some of the people that you've interviewed, you know, Elvis Costello and, and very successful people who are probably interviewed far more often than they would actually enjoy, uh, mm. uh, it, must, it must be quite different to be able to build a rapport to get them to perhaps go into some newer or some areas which get them excited to talk because it's, they're not just talking about the same old thing every time. Absolutely. And look, I've got to say, for me, the secret was always to work. Like, really do your homework. Mm. Uh, I don't think that you can do enough of that. And I always made sure I was across it. And if it was someone that I thought had a towering intellect and I thought might be... There are times you think, I don't know if I'm up <laughs> for this, you know. I might be found out here for the fraud that sure. I really am or whatever it is. Right. Um, and Elvis Costello was one of those. I remember that. And I was terrified. I thought, this guy is an intellectual giant. I've admired him as a musician. I'm not sure that I'm up for this, you know. And then I found him totally charming and disarming, mm. and which was lovely. Mm. Uh, they're not always like that. Sometimes you'll find them very difficult. Uh, but... With with anyone like that, uh, whether you're talking to someone like a Ben Elton or a, someone who's very well known and gets interviewed a lot, or even a politician, whoever it is, my my attitude was okay. Here's my approach: I'm going to deliver a killer intro, like a really really well delivered intro mm. that will engage their interest. That oh, hang on, this is a different approach. Mm. And always the opening question is going to be something that I think they've never been asked before. Okay. Always. Wow. Never ask an obvious question. Okay. If it's not something they haven't been asked before, it'll be something that isn't obvious mm. because you've got their attention right from the outset. Mm. And it's not about even trying to be particularly clever or even trying to ask them something that's going to put them in a difficult situation. I don't want to do that. I just want to ask them something that's going to stimulate their mm. interest mm. in what I'm trying to achieve. Mm. And if I've got them from that opening question, the conversation can go anywhere. Oh, that's, well, that's, uh, I've learned something uh, <laughs> very handy for myself. I, I know, for example, I interviewed a, a managing partner of a very successful law firm who's also the chairman of a, a significant government-owned corporation, and the interview was so dry, and I found it so difficult to get him engaged until at the end I started to talk about his passion, which was playing jazz piano, and... Uh, and he actually um, suddenly became really excited and I thought, oh boy, I wish I'd asked him that, you know, at the beginning of the interview instead of at minute 47, but, uh, you know, you are far more experienced at this than I am. So coming back to your career, it sounds as though um, a lot of your, um, the movement through your career has largely happened through happenstance through the, rather than particular planning. I, mm. I mean, I know that you were very... Um, uh, focused on achieving a role with Two Triple M, uh, and you you did that, and then you moved into ABC, and um, largely through your own listening habits, and I suppose seeing it as a better 
um, platform for you to achieve what you wanted to professionally. But uh, for those people who are listening in, um, you know, and really keen to learn about how uh, successful people who've managed their careers, what have been some of the key learnings you've had or you've applied through your career that's enabled you to really stay at the top of your game for so long? I think uh, number one is never knock back an opportunity. It doesn't mean accept every opportunity that comes your way, but be open to opportunity. And I learned that early on because sometimes when I was younger and a little bit more headstrong, I missed opportunities that I could have taken and should have taken. Um, I'll give you an example. I uh, Probably at the height of, of the Triple M days, uh, when I was just totally happy, just like this is where I wanted to be and it was everything I wanted it to be. I was hosting an event, uh, a launch for, a, a, it was a film premiere in Sydney and I was emceeing the launch of it and cable television was just about to start up in this country. And a man came up to me who was the, the, the programmer or the content director or whatever his title was for this cable channel, a very well-known cable channel. Uh, it was MTV actually. Right. Uh, which was on the Optus, in the early days Optus was there and then you had Foxtel. And he said, I'd love you to uh, come and host a program for us. Would you like to do that? And I said, no, I have no interest in television. Right. Thanks very much anyway. I just didn't even consider it. Yeah. I had never had any desire to work in television. And in retrospect, that was a pretty dumb thing to do because I could have easily done that and maintained my radio career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I used to wear my heart on my sleeve a lot and that uh, would cause me to be very outspoken and sometimes that's not a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Look, creative environments, you're dealing with a lot of egos and people who are very talented and you can have some very heated debate about um, the direction of where a particular um, campaign's going that the, the radio station might be involved in or a particular new format that the station's adopting or a contentious issue and how we've covered it or whatever it is. And everyone's going to have their views on it. And that's okay, but sometimes I think you've got to be very careful about what you say to who. <laughs> uh, a very wise broadcaster in Sydney Radio who's still at the top of his game and still doing very well said to me once, don't ever ask me what I think because I just might tell you. Right. And I, I walked away from that and I went, okay, that's a very interesting approach. Now that doesn't mean to be totally guarded, but I think it just means you need to be a little bit smarter mm. about how, what you say and when you say it. And when I was younger, as I said, I wasn't... Wisdom is a wonderful thing. And I think I've, I've learnt from that experience over time and learnt to, to be smarter in how I approach it. So just to understand that correctly, so <laughs> the older, wiser, you know, a, a person Broadcaster, said, said yes. to you, don't ask me what I think because I might tell you. Yes. So was he saying to you, you're telling people what you think without being asked? Uh, no, the thing was, I had asked his advice on... Uh, well, it wasn't even his advice. I was asking his view on something. Right. And it was something contentious. Yeah. And he decided that he didn't really want to share his view on it with me because he felt that his answer might not actually agree with my point of view. Right. And so his advice was, well, yeah, be very careful what you ask because yeah. you might you might get an answer you don't like, Right. basically. Uh, and I think... I think there is some wisdom in that, but only in the sense that I think you just need to be a little bit smarter about about what you share with people and yeah. how you share it, I think. Um, I'm a very open person, a very trusting kind of person, but 
I did learn from that, I think. I think I was a little bit too optimistic and a little bit too uh, maybe open uh, in those days and I learned to be a little bit smarter, I think. Optimistic or, or pushing for a bit of controversy? <laughs> maybe. You know what I mean? You yeah. what I'm saying? Because uh, um, uh, I, often journalists and or anybody will um, deliberately you know, ask questions in order to inflame a conversation, yes. and yeah. if anything else, make it more interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds to this guy is this guy saying, you know, almost the reverse. You know, keep keep your um, keep your cards to yourself. Yeah. No, that's true. And look, I have um, I, in my younger days been a bit more provocative mm. and known to stir the pot. And uh, I was once um, almost ejected from a press conference by Robert Plant, who oh, really? led, led Zeppelin. I'm right. a massive Led Zeppelin fan. But I was probably pushing his wrong buttons a bit that day. Right. Uh, so was it Andrew Denton who used to go in and hit hit ask uh, in press conferences one of the lines from Stairway to Heaven to just get royal people up? Do you yeah, remember that? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, we've all been there, I guess, in that sense. And I yeah. guess there's a certain kind of cockiness that comes with it. And if you're in a certain kind of envir- environment and you're at the number one station and you're successful mm. and you're making good money and, you know, there's a certain kind of confidence that comes with that. Yeah. Uh, and that's good while mm. it lasts. It's great to have that, but I also think that you learn from those experiences. Mm. I've just been watching this show on TV called Rake. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Oh, I love it. And Richard uh, Roxburgh, fantastic. I, I, I sort of avoided it for a while, but I'm firmly into series three now. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just about to turn 50 and... You look at him, and uh, if for those people who haven't seen it, he's a uh, a lawyer who's literally, you know, on the bones of his. Uh, but he's got no money, and he's an alcoholic, and he has this crazy. I look at that, and whilst there's lots and things about his lifestyle that I definitely wouldn't want, I have this kind of admiration and almost uh, envy for the fact that he just doesn't care less, and that he's been able to live that life. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it's almost counter what you're talking about, which is let me be who I am and say what I say and let the cards fall where they will. Yeah. Uh, I'm not prepared to, to compromise for some view of how society thinks I should be. Yeah, oh, true. And look, I, to be honest, I'm very, I have very strong ideals and I'm not prepared to compromise on what they are. And so if, I'm, if a working environment changes and I'm not comfortable with that anymore, yeah. then I leave. It's yeah. like it's time to move on. Mm. But... Uh, I, th- I still think you have to stay true to yourself, definitely. Mm. I just think you can be smarter about <laughs> how you do that. And pick your, pick your battles, you know. And so when we look to the future now, I mean, you're taking a, a bit of a hiatus from uh, the working actually in mainstream media, but you're still mm. very much involved in the industry in a different capacity. You know, when you, when you look to the future, what are the things that you're excited about um, for yourself professionally? Uh, I well, I've set up a um, just in my own time, and this is a gr- the diversity of, of digital medium. I have a, a, a website uh, and a podcast, like you, Richard, who doesn't have a podcast these days, <laughs> which is called Sound Distractions. And uh, I still get to it's my own little media empire, if you like. Yeah, I get to interview who I want to interview. It's a it's a music based website. Again, my passion is still music, although I have many many interests. It's the one thing that really drives me. Um, I just love it. I'll never tire of it and mm. never tire of exploring music. So uh, the the podcast, uh, I get to speak to um, uh, musicians, uh, some famous, some not so famous, or anyone involved in the music industry. And it's always about 
their life, their career, what makes them tick, what interests them. That's mm-hmm. what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on that side, I also write. I do um, classic album reviews. I do new music reviews. Uh, I write feature pieces on any particular um, topic that interests me. I cover events like Big Sound, which is the biggest music yeah. conference in, a, in Australia. I've done that for the last few years. Um, so I do that. I'm also a freelance writer. Uh, write for publications like Blank GC and uh, Time Off Media. and So various uh, publications, I do things like that still because that's my interest. I love it. And mm-hmm. I'll never stop doing that. I love writing still. Uh, and, and I still love to, to speak to people and get their stories. Um, but yeah, I've moved into a slightly different area, but it's still storytelling. And it's in an area which um, I have a great interest. My kids are teenagers now. They're about to enter into their own um, adult lives and make career decisions and education is going to be a big factor in their lives. So I have a very keen personal interest in where they're going to go and I really see the value in um, education as um, a future in this country. It's obviously Mm. economically, it's a very um, successful business. It's one of our most successful exports now. So... um, I see the value in that and I have a very keen interest in that. Um, so I, I think, as always, Richard, the, the future... The, the, I don't have a five-year plan. I don't have a... This is where I... There have been points in my life where I've wanted to work at certain places and I'm, I've achieved those. Um, I'm very happy in what I'm doing now. It's, I've only just started this new job but I'm loving it. So I think, you know... As long as I'm creatively engaged and I'm able to express that creativity freely and explore my interests, then, you know, um, the opportunities are endless. Absolutely. We've seen a lot of uh, very famous musicians die in the last few years before you've had a chance to interview them for your podcast. Mm. So uh, who's one uh, musician still alive that you'd really love to uh, have the opportunity to interview uh, on your podcast. Wow, that's a good question. I have to think about that. Who would be on my wish list if I wanted to interview? Uh, uh, who I haven't, or it'd be someone I haven't already spoken to, I guess. Um, if I was going to put somebody at the top of my list, uh, it would be somebody like... Hmm. Probably Billy Bragg. Okay. Um... Fascinating guy. Uh, I've never spoken to him. Politically motivated. Has an encyclopedic knowledge of of R&B, which a lot of people might not know about him, uh, which I greatly admire. Uh, He would be an endless source of interest to me, uh, someone like him, I would think. Uh, Joe Jackson, I think, is a very, very talented musician. Um, Big fan of him. Uh, embrace so many genres musically and what he's done I think a very uh, singularly focused kind of musician and perhaps a very difficult person to speak to but I'd like the opportunity to speak to him yeah I've, I've seen Joe Jackson live many years ago and uh, I saw Billy Bragg play last year at Blues Fest and uh, what I really enjoyed about him was how self-depreciating he is mm. you know uh, is that self-deprecating self-deprecating you know yeah. he really uh, He's probably depreciating know. too. We all yeah, are. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, created, he created his whole persona on this platform about being for the working man, and and mm. you know he certainly uh, that's a big part of who he is now. But uh, he's very funny. I didn't. I, I having not seen him live, I I, I found him uh, 
hilarious. Mm. And uh, in fact, uh, I, I've got a couple of albums on Spotify and I covered um, New England uh, on one of my albums and I really wanted the opportunity to uh, to give that to him. But he seems like a, a lovely guy and I bet he'd have some incredible stories. You could probably podcast interview him for 10 hours. <laughs> I think I think there'd be a series in it for sure, yeah. yeah. That's what, they're the people you really want to talk to. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of really interesting musicians. I think Michael Franti's an amazing musician. Uh, um, a, a man who went into Iraq after, oh well, when the, the conflict was still going on and just started interviewing um, Iraqis, American servicemen, um, just went in there armed with a, a, an acoustic guitar, mm. um, didn't arrange anything beforehand, just waltzed in there and took a camera with him and just filmed the experiences. Amazing. I like, you know, extraordinary um, human being. A man who who cares about the future of the planet and, and um, humanity. Uh, people like that uh, just uh, greatly admire and have so much time for and... Um, he was just wonderful to interview. Um, yeah, it's it's not just musicians, of course. You know, it, it, you know, there's there's plenty of authors and 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 other artists that you know you'd love to to interview. Politicians, even some that you'd like to interview, some that you wouldn't. Well, uh, as you said to me before uh, uh, we started this interview, I mean, everybody's got a story, haven't they? Yes. Uh, and I think that um, having the skill to help people to unpack their own stories is obviously something that you have but uh we should let this story end for today because i'm sure you've got other things to do on a sunday afternoon trevor thanks very much i really appreciate you taking the time and uh have a great afternoon the pleasure's been mine richard thanks so much (laughs) 